Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 117th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's only slightly offended that our childhood decks are now old school. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face Check out face card pricing via mtgprice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin. And we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. But we are on, on target today. I messed up, messed up reading this copy that I've read a hundred times and you're eating breakfast, lunch while we do it. <laughs> I, I'm trying to digress from that. <laughs> uh, good afternoon, James. Uh, we're uh, got a great show for you here and uh, looking forward to sharing all sorts of valuable information with all of you. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Hey, Travis, what's on the agenda this week? For James, this week we have a show in like five parts, sort of. So uh, make sure you head over to mtgprice.com and check out the interview we did this week with Todd Stevens, where we talked to Dominaria uh, and all of the things, all the cards there, what's hot and modern, standard, uh, EDH, uh, and really get a good pro's perspective. That's up and available now. It's been around since Tuesday. So everyone can go catch that, pro trader and public listener alike. We also have our standard show today. Segment one is our top movers, where we will talk about the cards that have seen the most price increase in the last week. Uh, segment two is our cards to watch. James and I will review a few cards we've got our eyes on. Segment three is our metagame week in review. We'll touch briefly on Star City Atlanta, which was last weekend. And finally, segment four, our topic of the week, we're going to talk Battle Bond. So let's hop in at the start. Uh, segment one, our top movers. First card on the list is Isamaru, Hound of Konda from Champions of Kamigawa. Uh, non-foils here up about five bucks 10 to 15 this is definitely because of mox amber isamaru is one of the few one mana legends and also the type of card that really wants you to be on the battlefield very fast so this is uh people trying to thinking that this is where to go with mox amber basically yeah we've seen ross Marion put together a 5-0 league on magic online via the todd stevens stream not so long ago um, but it's not clear that that deck is emergent in modern so much as theoretical. Um, we need to see some top eight performance before I get too excited about Isamaru. Is but because it hasn't been reprinted in a forever um, and there's no product on the horizon where it's likely to be reprinted, um, you know, it's probably going to hold this plateau. Yeah, I don't know where they would put this that you would see the price decrease. There's just not exactly. really not really a reprint spot. Uh, so um, I'm thinking with the rest of this list, there is a ton of reserve list stuff on here. So why don't we go through all the non-reserve list cards, and then because they bore you, I will buzz through them at the end and just cover off what's happened in that scene this week. Okay, so is the you in that sentence me personally or people in general? Well, <laughs> I guess that depends on people's perspective, but it was you personally. Oh. I mean, I wouldn't say they bore me. It's mostly just like it's the same explanation for every single one of them, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, Fair enough. That's so. That, so as I'm saying, let's let's go through the interesting cards and then get back to reserve list. <laughs> That's fine by me. 
So next on the list, we've got City of Brass from Arabian Nights, a card uh, that is not on the reserve list um, and certainly underscores the potential for original printings of cards to explode under the right circumstances, um, even if they're not protected by that list. So City of Brass is a three to four of land in most of the old school decks. Um, so as the 9394 scene slowly, steadily grows its user base, um, and the fact that the first four years of Magic have been targeted very heavily from all these reserve list buyouts means that there are very scant number of copies in near mint SP condition left of this card. Um, I'm holding a couple. I bought a couple more with my recent buy list trade in to Card Kingdom. Um, these are slam dunks if you ever intend to own them because they're not going back down. Uh, the you know these Arabian Nights printings or legends, uh, whatever whatever you have, um, is you know if they're popular and old school, if they're identifiable uh, and they kind of have that that history, the original printings are going to hold value. I don't think that's true of everything necessarily, but it's certainly true of enough. Yeah, I mean, for instance, we saw Rashad and Port get tanked by its release in uh, Iconic Masters. I mean, sorry, in M25. And uh, what was the land in Iconic Masters that got wrecked? Uh, no, Eternal Masters had Wasteland, right? Yeah, there's been more too, and I'm drawing a blank at the moment. But there's, yeah, there's been a couple. Uh, keep in mind, though, Richard on Port was not legal in old school, though, which would be part yeah. of it. Exactly. That's my that's my point is that it really depends what what your play pattern is like. Um, legacy is not enough anymore to hold the price up of a card that only sees play there, especially if it's in only a couple of decks like shot and port, for instance, is basically a death and taxes card in legacy and nobody else is really playing it. And so, um, you know, the relative stat relatively static nature of the player population for legacy um, really is quite different than. Uh, the underlying growth potential for an Arabian Nights card, which is from a much older set than Mercadian Masks mm -hmm. and um, and has significantly lesser copies ever printed, um, despite it having multiple future printings. And so is it, we're actually at a stage now where even if they printed a, a City of Brass in a fall set, all it would do is drive the price of the original up even further because you'd have a couple of guys that, at the LGS in the rich neighborhood, they would just want to have old school versions in their standard deck. And the thing is, we're not going to see that card reprinted because they've already switched to the templating on mana confluence. Yeah, I don't know. City of Brass could only show up in a supplementary product like Battle Bond or something. And it's not, I'll let me clarify that it will not be in Battle Bond, but you're not, you can't see it in an expansion set because, yeah, mana confluence is their new uh, City of Brass. Yep. So Next keep an eye out for that type of stuff. But I would, I, I think the point here is that it's <clears throat> almost feels like we've seen a transition or we're seeing a transition where legacy isn't the, the format that drives the price of old black border cards. It's 93. Like that's more important now than legacy is in some ways. Yeah. I mean, there's, and keep in mind, it's not just 93, 94, it's 93, 94. Um, plus the variants of that format. There are ones that go to 96, for instance, um, plus collectors, plus reserve list targeting in general, that it has caught some of these non-RL cards up in, in the dragnet of just trying to drain all of the supply from those sets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. All right. So next card is Teferi Hero of Dominaria. Started mm. around $20, now up to around $35 for about a double up. Um, this is people, of course, were unsure how this was going to handle the first week out. Uh, you know, Planeswalkers are usually kind of a big question mark unless they're really obvious. But it turns out Teferi's good. Uh, we saw him all over the place in blue-white control decks and standard. He's also even popping up in modern blue-white decks, uh, although not in quite the same volume. But clearly, he is uh, at least worth almost possibly the real deal. You know, it, yeah. a great start. Um, and, and as we discussed with Todd earlier this week, it's basically because he's so good in tap-out control. The ability to slam him down with five mana on the table and know that you're still going to have mana up because he untaps lands at the end of the turn to react to your opponent's move is, is I think what, what makes him good um, outside the standard without that particular ability. Um, he'd be significantly worse. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Uh, yeah. So a pretty good move there up to 35. I'm pretty sure he's done now. Uh, at least I would not be putting more money into him. Um, you know, he's, he should not be able to see enough play in standard where he, that really pushes his price. And unless modern really takes off with their use of uh, blue-white control backs like that. I mean, if he's tier one in both formats, I guess he can move up from 35, but you can't bank on that. The problem with control decks in modern right now is they have so many different um, attackers <laughs> to plan for. And they never know exactly what mix of decks they're going to face in their, their particular gauntlet on any given weekend. And it makes it very difficult for those decks to become dominant. You can have a masterful control player um, that consistently plays, say, Grixis control or Jeskai control or whatever, and can put up good individual results, put up good stats. But you're never going to see it take over like 15 to 20% of modern. No. And because of that, even if Teferi's good there, um, he has to see way, way more play than he's seeing to make any kind of like long-term impact just on the modern play alone. And I think that EDH contributes here. Like Teferi's better in Atraxa than say Gideon ally of Zendikar is. And so his overall long-term prospects are better than say Gideon's are. Um, Gideon sees occasional play in modern just like Teferi will, um, but they might actually be competing for slots in the same kind of deck. Um, and, but I, I'm still interested in Russian foils, for instance, foreign foils, um, early summer, if we see a good sale. Sure. Yeah, I could see going that direction. And my, and my thought on a similar note is basically that, uh, you know, he could be the best card in blue white control one weekend, but the modern metagame shifts and we'll try and find strategies to beat to fairy. So he won't be the same, the best card the next weekend, you know? So yeah, I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that if Jace, the Mind Sculptor, got unbanned, best Planeswalker of all time, eh, debatable between him and Liliana, right? Mm, no. Um, <laughs> oh, go you ahead. think Jace is better than the, of the Veil? I mean, of the Veil, seeing a lot more play. Yeah, I mean, yes, but we don't we don't need to belabor that now. Sure. So they're both excellent. Sure. Is the point? Um, but we're still. <laughs> It got unbanned. We all thought it was going to wreck the format, and it did no such thing. Um, the format's too fast. It's too diverse. Jace doesn't answer the threats necessarily in, in the same way, and doesn't have the ability to keep your lands untapped to react in the way that Teferi does. So, you know, if Jace can't get there, um, Teferi is unlikely to be played in any greater quantity, and so consider. Yeah, agree. Uh, all right, what do you got next for us? 
Uh, Lyra Dawnbringer from Dominaria is the other, you know, of the three mythics we thought might pop coming out of opening weekend, it was Karn, which I called last week to potentially push 50. He didn't show up as in as dominant uh, a quantity at the top tables um, as I thought he would, but the knight is still young uh, in this particular scene. Um, Teferi and Lyra were the other two that were on my radar, and both of them have popped. So Lyra went from 17 to 32. Karn was pushing 35-40 last weekend, but doesn't look like he's ready to push for 50 anytime soon. Supply of all of these cards is still relatively high, um, and they're going to have trouble pushing much deeper um, unless supply gets constrained or standard gets exceedingly popular, which I have my doubts about. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah, agreed. Uh, uh, yeah, next up is Search for Azkanta, the buy a box promo, the, uh, the hidden fourth fourth right masterpiece series right expedition invention invocation map mapster series yeah masterpiece series these are the uh the buy a box flip card promos that use the discontinued or i should say unreleased masterpiece series that was originally planned for ixalan that got canned uh they use them as alternate art buy a box promos and if you turn them all over they form a map so they're very cool uh right that's that yes yes that is those okay so these foils from 55 to over 100. So doubled on the Search for Escanta buy a box promos. Uh, I know, James, you've had some success selling those recently. Um, so this is probably just the tip of the iceberg for these. I think a lot of players yeah. are basically unaware that these exist. Um, you know, if you're not in our sphere, that you wouldn't really have a reason to be paying close attention. Uh, so I guess a lot of competitive players basically don't know about these. But... Uh, over time, players who want copies of these are going to find out they exist and prices will continue to rise. So Search for Kanta and uh, Itlamok, the green one, the Gaius Cradle, are certainly up there in terms of um, ones we should be interested in. I mean, Search isn't a four of anywhere. It's just almost, it's, a, it's amazing as a one or a two of in almost every blue deck. Um, it's great in EDH. Um, and, you know, anything that gives you some utility some card selection and then turns into card draw um, is hard to say no to. And people are going to come around to the fact that the masterpieces are the rarest of all of the masterpieces because of the way they were distributed in booster packs on Black Friday and only in two countries. So there's only two printings of these. There's English and there's Japanese. The Japanese are even more sexy, obviously, and harder to find it's basically impossible to find the Japanese version of this card. I bought, I bought some confidently at 135 in Europe last week um, with every intention of being able to get out on those over 250 because they, they just don't exist. Like Japanese players aren't, <laughs> have no motivation to sell them if they're using the card. And, you know, it's not standard play that's keeping search for as can't high at all. So you don't have to worry about rotation. Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, it's in standard, it's very popular there, but that's not what's going to keep the promos alive. That's going to be modern and EDH. Uh, and those are exactly the formats that are going to be interested in these types of uh, alternate art, cool foreign language things. Yeah, we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to my pick of the week. Okay. Uh, so that moves us on to Sylvan Library from Legends. Uh, I noticed you have this marked as one and not the other. Do you want to tell me what you're thinking here? Uh, well, it's not reserve list. Oh, um, right, right, this right. Is just, this is like city, same same boat as City of Brass, essentially. Um, Sylvan Library is some of the best card selection in old school. Um, it's played in, in Legacy and Vintage. And, of course, it's EDH legal. Um, all of that combined means that the fact that it's 
it's can be reprinted not in any set like you're not you're definitely not getting this card in standard um but you can print it in a master's style set no problem and but we've seen it as recently as i think eternal masters i think that's the last time we saw it uh um, yeah it was when one of those things yeah and but original printings um are up pushing 150 200 um in realistic terms and are never going to reverse course because there's just no copies left in the market somebody just actually offered me two um for under 200 and i think that's probably a snap buy once i finish that negotiation i i bought i got a couple in my buy list order and bought a couple overseas and i think they're all slam dunks wow that's pretty nice hard to complain about that uh, next up is Retract from Darksteel. Non-foil is 5 to $12. I think I did a triple take when I saw this because I bought these ages ago uh, and they spiked and I didn't sell them all. And now apparently they're selling, spiking again. Like, I'll take it. Uh, Modern Cheerios is where this comes from. It uses Mox Opal and a pile of Zeromon artifacts and Pearsal Paladin and SRAM. Uh, and combos off and kills with Grape Shot usually, or, and there's some other options too, Montar the Meek. Uh, so I, I'm almost, without knowing anything prior to this, without seeing it on the list, I'm almost positive this is from Mox Amber, because you can play it with... Uh, Mox Opal wouldn't work for Mox Amber, but Pure Steel Paladin would. And you have to have Pure Steel Paladin to go off anyway. So these once you have Pure Steel Paladin play, this gives you another Monosaurus, which the deck would love to have. Uh, Am I? You think that's spot on there, James, or am I missing something? I don't think they're running that card yet. I'm not sure that it's reliable enough. Um, but it was streamed by I think Jim Davis this week, which is probably what put it back in the in the forefront. And it five o to Modern League as recently as May first. So ah, um, there it is. Yeah, it, it's out there on the fringes, right? Like the de- when the deck goes off, it just wins. Yes, um, and it can win very quickly um, with the with the right draw. It's just pure steel paladin, SRAM senior ed- edificer, some some card selection and a pile of like 24 28 zero casting cost artifacts yeah i do remember um when i played this uh a while ago that the only thing that ever beat me was lightning bolt if they didn't have lightning bolt i couldn't lose uh it was a cool deck it's fun yeah Unfortunately, this is a lightning bolt format. Yeah, <laughs> that also has fatal push and path. So yeah, fatal push makes it know, even con- worse. Consistency of the deck is is quite dubious. Yeah, I'm sure. What else we got? Yeah, yeah. Oh, what what do you think about this artifact? Zero casting cost. Sack it to give a creature hexproof until end of turn. Split second. Is it, so wait, is it, what was the casting cost on it? Zero. And was it? Did you say it was an artifact? It's basically, a, it's, it's basically lightning greaves that only works once. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's funny that you say that because just at brunch this morning we were talking about the hexproof mechanic from Eternal, which is also a one-time use. Essentially, gives a creature hexproof and indestructible one time, and then you lose it. Uh, and and is uh, very popular. Uh yeah. I don't think that's unfair. You know, it costs you a card slot. It's all, probably almost not good enough, right? Like from in most scenarios, because it's not worth the card. But mm-hmm. the cards but, where it's good in, are going to be good. Yeah, <laughs> like decks like this would love that. Like it, the ability to equip without response, um, and then be hexproof. But like basically just get trade a card for protection for whatever combo creature you're trying to go off with. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I digress. So 
this next one, I got to give full credit to Cedric Phillips of Star City Games fame, um, who's been talking to me a bit lately about MG Finance matters. And one of his recent picks was Settle the Wreckage. Um, and I, I know Jim Casale on uh, your other cast also had pointed out that cards from the Ixalan block were likely to uh, rocket ship if um, the decks they were in in standard uh, were doing really well or were quite popular. Um, Settle the Wreckage has proven to be the most efficient sweeper in standard. It also sees some play in modern these days. And as a result, we're seeing this standard rare pop from 6 to 16, which is uh, not an event that happens too much anymore. No, and I remember looking at this at 7 or 8 uh, a couple of weeks ago and considering whether I wanted to talk about it. And I didn't really because I, I wanted it at 4 or 5. Um, so, yeah, that's a, a big jump and you should absolutely be selling these because I don't think they're going to be able to hold 15. Uh, this was a really good weekend or so for blue-white control. The odds of that continues to perform that well and that causes settle the wreckage to rise are, are real slim. So I like definitely like selling here. Yeah, I don't I don't see huge gains in its feature, but I think it probably holds a pattern similar to Vraska's Contempt, right? Which is the other rare from that block that has been good all the way along um, and spiked earlier. Um, and has done a pretty good job of holding its holding its high um, because it's just those are cards you need in the format to be able to deal with things like Scarab God. True, true. Yeah, being able to take him out. The problem with using this against Scarab God is that by the time Scarab God's attacking, you've probably already lost the game. <laughs> well, a red too, right? That's what X, standard Exile in Standard has never been as good as it is right now. Yeah, with the, yeah. In, with the indestructible gods. Well, taking out Hazaret for sure is a big deal. Uh, that one matters quite a bit. And yes, I agree. Exile every now and then it feels like every other year, every eighteen months, Exile gets really important. And this is another one of those scenarios. Yeah, and red aggro decks and vehicle uh, Mardu decks are big things right now in this format, and um, giving them lands off settle isn't that big a deal. You just need to get get rid of that alpha strike that's coming in with two or three creatures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so next up is Goblin Rabble Master from M15, $8 to 20 from uh, M15. The foils specifically have, have made this move. Uh, this is, I would assume, based on Skirk Prospector, um, and the chance that goblins could be good in that format. Uh, you know, if you listen to Todd this past week with our interview with him, I, I pushed him on this a little bit and he's not a fan of goblins. He doesn't think Skirk Prospector is going to do it. Nonetheless, it looks like people are still going to take that shot anyways. Uh, so Keep, keeping guess, in mind, keeping in mind that Todd's, I don't think ever cast a red card. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't know. Lightning bolt. If he plays just guy control, maybe, uh, I don't think I've ever seen him play that. Okay. Uh, so so that people are definitely looking for that as an option, and time will tell if it's good enough. I don't have that answer yet, but that's yeah. uh, that's where that's coming from. Goblin Rebel Master is probably <clears throat> the new Goblin Pile Driver, right? It's probably like Goblin Pile Driver is not as good as it used to be because the protection from blue is so much less relevant. Goblin Rebel Master seems like it's just sort of trying to do what that does, except better. Both of those are extremely strong cards. The question is just whether uh, of your aggro. Um, options in modern is there a reason to be choosing goblins i think goblins is in the same even if goblins is better now because of what it gained is in the same boat as merfolk right um they're both just worse than humans because humans has so many interactive elements that can tackle control decks that those two decks the other two deck tribal decks don't have yeah i mean you can build goblins to be faster than humans for sure i think goblins has speed that neither of the other two do and sure. skirt prospector provides a mana engine 
So it allows you to build it kind of combo-y, which also is something neither of those builds can do. Now, obviously, Humans has a much more uh, resilient and disruptive game plan because of the options available to it. But uh, I guess it depends on what Modern looks like any given week and, and what needs to be what the deck needs in order to be good will tell us you know, if goblins can get there. I'm also pretty sure that the fecundity builds that Jim Davis and other streamers were running recently um, don't don't get that high on the curve, right? Because they're basically a combo deck. Um, they can't can't afford to be fooling around with the attack step and three three drops. So if the best goblins deck is the fecundity combo version, then we're definitely not going to see Rebel Master in Modern anytime soon. Um, and I suspect that this was more about you know, it, a large part of the demand on this card could be speculative. You know, people make bad spec decisions all the time. The number of specs that are floated past me in, in private chat on any given week attest to that. Uh, I'm sure you deal with that as well. And uh, I have maintained an approachable an, an unapproachable enough error that I am spared <laughs> that for the most part, but still not completely. And... Um, yeah, I think there's some casual demand here. Like, you know, there's some cool goblins in Dominaria. People are buying lots of Dominaria and they are looking for goblins to purchase alongside. Well, goblins has always enjoyed uh, pretty robust casual support. So that could definitely be part of it. And Goblin Rabble Master does read pretty well to casual players. There's always the issue that casual players might not recognize that a card is really good for them. Um but I don't think Goblin Rabble Master probably has that issue. So I, it's probably some combination of everything here would be my best guess. Mm-hmm. All right. So next on the list, we have River Kelpie out of Shadowmoor. The non-foil copies moving now from 250 to 9. This is on the back of how good that deck that card is in Maldrotha. Foils already moved last week. So this week, we're catching up with the non-foils. When we talked about River Kelpie before, I wasn't exactly clear what the reasoning was. I know we had touched on it a long time ago because it was just a useful EDH card. And then uh, we pointed out there was Muldrasa, which made a lot of sense, does a lot of work in that deck. And that's definitely been one of the most popular generals on EDH rec lately, that and Jota, uh, which it all, it all makes sense. Um, so, yeah, until this sees a reprint, it seems like it's pretty good shape to not really go any, to, to not really decrease at all. <clears throat> I don't see this card getting reprinted for a bajillion years. Persist? Yeah, nah. Persist and essential. Uh, I guess River Kelpie. I don't know whether they would consider that named or not. Yeah. Oh, that's definitely plain specific. So, Is it? Yeah. The, the, yeah. Kelpies are, are only on, on that plane. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so next on the list, we've got Villainous Wealth. One of my picks from a ways back. <laughs> I've got a bunch of these, including Japanese foils. I got it at about six bucks and they're going to pay off, but it took a long time. <laughs> I think I bought, bought, bought those in 2014, 2015. So they get to come out of the box of shame and play soon. And was uh, um, that long ago for cons? Yeah. So foils going from $3 to 14. That's a 360% gain. Uh, Villainous Wealth is a sick card in EDH that does nasty, nasty things when you've got lots of mana. And there are plenty of generals. Um, you can kind of slot it in anywhere where you're going to have a late game. So uh, I'm not tremendously surprised to see it eventually, the foils eventually drain out of the market. Yeah, me neither. And I feel like you would pick, you talked about this way back in cons. And I feel like I picked it again recently because I liked it as well, like within the last two months or some time this year, uh, just because I noticed it was evaporating as well. Yeah, powerful card, uh, I guess. I guess this is showing that the con stuff is starting to be in a position where it's been long enough that you might be able to start making money on those specs. So if there's anything from cons that you've been waiting on that you weren't sure 
if there was too much supply, the answer is probably now is the time to go if that was what you're looking for. Definitely worth a look to see what the most popular cons block cards are on EDH Rec and figure out which foils are still in stock. Mm-hmm. Um, so next on the list, we've got Strip Mine from Antiquities. It's actually a couple of the versions moving from 3540 to over 120 for a 250% gain. Um, it was unbanned uh, at Channel Fireball Vintage events this week, um, but they were already under pressure. So the combination just means that people are mopping up remaining copies. Old school, but yes. Yeah. And I, there was a conversation about this recently. Sorry, yes. Um, CFB old school. <laughs> CFB just changed the vintage list. It's fine. They can do that. They, they own them all. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there was a good bit of discussion, I thought, with uh, some people on Twitter who, who are a little more in touch with the format than, than we are. They kind of pointed out that Channel Fireball is mostly just catching up to the rest of the world. So, it doesn't seem like it's going to trigger demand in the same way that it might if like this was just them doing this sort of out of the blue. Uh, but at the same time, that's still a confirmation, sort of an additional layer of support that it was missing before, especially by the group who was doing these the most anyways or running the most old school events. So that definitely helps. Yeah, I, I didn't fully agree with what people were saying about how, you know, they're just catching up and everybody else does it. Who's the everybody else? CFB runs all the GPs in North America. So yes, there are other vintage events that are run, but not the total number of people playing vintage has to be the highest at the CFB events, right? Well, it's still not vintage, but <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say that's probably one of the hot spots for the format. I mean, I think a lot of that gets played at, at home, right? For the most part, it seems like it's a very like get together with your buddies because it's essentially like completely unsanctioned, and that's like sort of the appeal of it. Um, so I'd imagine a lot of the uh, a lot of games get played outside of official Magic venues. I mean, I would guess it's more about like. LGS is in rich neighborhoods. Like you, you have to have certain demographics to be able to attract a play group at all. And then you may connect through the local LGS. Maybe the local LGS owner is an aficionado or has a decent stock of old school cards because he's been in, in business for a long time, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, whatever. Um, bottom line is speculators respond to the word unbanned. <laughs> right. For sure. Faster than just about anything else. Um, and as I said, these were already under pressure. Um, so I, Happy with the copies I picked up last summer, that's for sure. Cool. Cool, cool, cool beans. All right. Uh, next up is Tendershoot Dryad. A uh, dollar to six dollars. I, I got to look this one up. Hold on. What is Which one is this card? Oh, this is this the is one, the one... Ixalan, uh mm-hmm. or Rivals of Ixalan. Five mana, two, two with a send. Uh, at the beginning of your upkeep, create a one, one token and all the saplings you control have two, two, as long as you have the city's blessing. So if you're playing a slime foot deck, you are definitely going to have 10 permanents in play by like turn four, uh, which means all of your saplings get plus two, plus two, as long as Cinder shoot is in play, which is what those desperately need. Uh, so non foils up to about six bucks, huh? That's pretty good. I guess this is being played in standard too. Is that right? I mean, that's what I'm seeing here yeah. in my notes here. I haven't it's seen green. That. Green, black, slime foot. 5-0 to league, April 23rd. Huh. Uh, Lanor Elves, Metallic Mimics, Four Crown Thalid, Slime Foot the Stowaway, Yavimaya Shepherd, and Four Tender Shoot Dryad. Wild. I wonder... Fatal Pushes, Fatal Push, Cast Down, Vicious Offering, and Vraska's Contempt. So they have a really good removal suite. And then a bunch of... Making a bunch of Sapperlings, and they can crew up an Aether Sphere Harvester and swing. Sapperlings getting there in standard would be uh, unreal. Just like to see this this tribe go from 
like somewhere in the forgotten to joke range to tier one <laughs> standard would just be yes. Well, that would be yeah. something else. I don't think it's going to be tier one standard, but it's seeing play in standard and is and Slimefoot is one of the top three most in, important EDH commanders from Dominaria. So um, all of that combined, plus Casali's comment about you know, like the the, the reality is that Ixalan uh, was released into a low um, in terms of standard popularity. So he's absolutely right to say that um, there are less of those cards floating around um, in circulation than there otherwise would be, um, you know, compared to say a rare in the fall of 2014 or whatever, when cons block came out and everybody was playing standard. I mean, the standard standard was so powerful with treasure crews and dig through time. It almost felt like modern. Yeah, that was, that was a pretty wild standard format. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, by comparison, um, Dominaria is a major upswing. And so cards from when we were in a downswing should appreciate yeah. All right. So moving right along with the cards that are not reserved list, Life and Limb foils from Planar Chaos. This is another slime foot card moving from $250 to $20 for foils. Congrats if you got in on those at the right moment. Um, up 700%. Uh, if you can exit on those anywhere near 15 plus, I think you're doing great. Um, but you don't need to be in a rush because slime foot hype should last a couple months at least. Um, so pick your moment and go. Last on the list of non-reserve list gainers, Secrets of the Dead, Foils from Dark Ascension. Um, moving from $0.50 cents to $7.50, this totally unknown card. Um, draws you a card anytime you play a card out of your graveyard. So it is an auto-include in Moldratha, where all you're trying to do is get your entire library into your graveyard and then cast out of it constantly. Um, I picked up Japanese foils in Europe for like 4 bucks a piece the other day. That's pretty nice. Uh, yeah, I know no one should have had these in their sitting around their house unless you were. Uh, it's all in it's all in bulk boxes. Yeah, right? like unless you're a vendor, you wouldn't have these unless you were present. But even then, it seems it would have been like so easy to get reprinted at some point. So you probably shouldn't have had them sitting around. I don't know, but someone somewhere owned copies of these and made money. So good to that guy, I guess. Yeah, this was all about being on the on the button when people started figuring out. Oh, Madoth is probably going to be good. Like what? cards will be in that deck the other one i've been looking at is traumatized foils that's what puts half your deck we talked about this with todd mm-hmm. puts half your deck your deck in uh into your graveyard <laughs> which is like a draw 40 uh yeah pretty good effect in that deck i would say all right so now let me buzz through the reserve list we have <laughs> first of all there was like 150 cards that gained more than 15 percent this week <laughs> and only like 40 percent of them were on the reserve list um, it is magic is doing very well right now, um, regardless of what was happening six months ago. So everything from Argivian archaeologist, helm of obedience, academy rector, memory jar, lifeline, humility, city of shadows, opalescence, hall of gemstone, Balduvian trading post, reparations, recycle, <laughs> nameless race, ancestral knowledge, cadaverous bloom, seeds of innocence. Even Alara is excited about it. <laughs> Sedge Troll, Frankenstein's Monster, and Grave Robbers. Um, A lot of these cards are kind of known reserve list cards that we could name off the top of our head that we've already seen motion on before. I'm talking about things like Academy Rector, Helm of Obedience, um, Humility, that can get played in EDH. They probably actually see less play than they should, um, uh, depending on which one you're talking about. And I'm not at all surprised, uh, will not at all be surprised to see that those cards hold their new plateaus and continue on. 
Other cards, things like Grave Robbers out of the Dark. I mean, the Dark in general is a much larger print run, um, not compared to today, but compared to things like Antiquities and Arabian Nights. And Grave Robbers is not a card you're going to get see, see play anytime soon. Frankenstein's Monster is not something that people should be after. I think I named Sedge Troll from Revised there. I, I don't even know. Yeah, I guess that's reserved list. Um, but I mean, white bordered Sedge Troll getting up over twenty dollars. Yeah, just I, I don't I don't believe it. I guess that just seems like it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it, it gets played in in the old school formats um, for sure because it's a three three regenerator for three, which is very efficient in that format. Believe it or not. Um, but the bottom line here is everybody's aware. The reserve list is being constantly targeted. The good news is you don't have to fight about it forever because eventually they're just going to run out of specs. <laughs> there, there are, it is a finite list. Um, they are right at the bottom of the barrel and scraping. And, you know, you just need to decide how much you actually want these cards now. Yeah, I, I felt like felt like we were done with this, but I guess not. We're just starting around at the top again, which is fine, I guess. Is this going to keep happening? Uh, yeah, until they kind of plow well, through the and- whole list. And then I feel like and then it'll just start all over again, right? I mean, that's because we, we had this conversation two years ago, two summers ago, while I yep. was overseas and Cliff was on for a while. And then it happened again last yep. year. Well, and it's been ongoing. We've been talking about it every week. The, the reality here is that people don't get it. It's not just about the reserve list. It's about the fact that this hobby is 25 years old. There's 20,000 plus cards in the hobby. No matter what reprint schedule they set, they couldn't possibly print them fast enough. Even if they got rid of the reserve list, it would not eliminate buyouts. They are endemic to the hobby because there will never be enough of the cards that could possibly be printed, reprinted in any given year. And so there will always be these huge gaps. And you have, (laughs) I would argue at this point, you are doing yourself a severe disservice as a Magic player. If you don't at least get involved on the MTG finance side to save yourself money, whatever you, whatever communist leanings you may have, um, whatever uh, aggression you may feel towards speculators, by all means, carry that around like a chip on your shoulder. But if you're not at least paying attention to MTG finance so that you can get in and out of cards at the right time, you, you just don't understand the hobby that you're participating in. Because this has been there the entire time. It will always be there. The entire nature of Magic is based on rarity, limited releases, large gaps between reprint. And that that's just the way it is, folks. Uh, I, I will agree at the, at the note that uh, regardless of your personal feelings, if you don't want to get soaked playing Magic, that it is a wise idea to keep an eye on what's going on. Yeah. Uh, so that you, yeah, because because even if let's say the reserve list like disappeared tomorrow, first of all, <laughs> talk to talk through this thought experiment with me because this doesn't get discussed enough. Let's say they announce Vintage Masters tomorrow and it's being released in November. It's going to have the entire Power Nine in it. How how do you price that set? Uh, I, I was that when not they, rhetorical. When they, yeah, it's semi-rhetorical. I mean, the you can jump in if you want. What I'm trying to say is that the modern master sets, right? They 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 take a pile, a double handful of like fifty dollars plus cards, and they they have to raise the the price per pack 
to $10 a box to make the whole thing work. And as we've seen lately, if they don't do that with something like Iconic Masters or M25 and they put less goodness in there, then they should probably be setting the MSRP more closer to six or seven and it would be fair because then you'd have like $150, $160 boxes. But how would you do it with Vintage Masters? The, the combination of the Power 9 is worth like $15,000. So it's impossible to print that at any kind of volume that makes sense. I have no, I have noticed that and, as, a, as, a, as a talking point amongst advocates of the repeal is, oh, well, you know, once, once they print this, everyone can have them and then we can all play Legacy and Vintage. And it's like, do you really think they're just going to burn that all at once? Like they're gonna, if they repeal the reserve list, if they just go, okay, well, you guys have been waiting a decade for this, uh, and these cards are currently on the market for fifteen thousand dollars. We'll give them all to you for a uh, hundred bucks. Like a year? Who are you kidding? Right? Like they would release one printing of one card once every three years. Like that's how those would get doled out. They they would have to be something like masterpieces. Like you would have to have like an, a, a vintage master set where you had like a, a, essentially the rarity of a masterpiece for the power nine and they would still be hundreds and hundreds of dollars each. If masterpiece soul ring can hit 500, what do you think masterpiece black Lotus can get to yeah. with better art and foil? Are you kidding me? The only foil lotuses, it might end up above unlimited lotuses. <laughs> In fact, it, it, it probably would. Like the the best, the actual best argument for removing the reserve list is not access because it's ridiculous to even claim access issues in a hobby that has so like where 99.9% of the cards cost a penny and you can invent your own format anytime you want and play with your friends and you don't need at all to be competitive, like in the competitive, like pro tour pursuit scene if you don't want to be. And they've get, they're giving you new ways to play all the time as we're going to talk about shortly. So back up the truck on this, on this masterpiece Lotus concept, like you're not going to get a $50 Lotus. That's just not going to happen it, for the same reasons that you can't print hundred dollar cards into commander sets in the fall, because then the math doesn't work. It, if you printed a low, even if the Lotus was 10 times, you know, less um, uh, likely to appear in a given pack, than a masterpiece is currently. So you're getting like one out of every 20 boxes or something. And it was one of the 10. It's not guaranteed to be a, lo- guaranteed to be a Lotus. That only puts like a couple of thousand foil Lotuses on the market. They would be stratospherically expensive. Yeah. No. Th- there's no good way out of this. You can't. <laughs> it would take there, there so long for them to dole these out in a quantity that would reduce prices to the point where people would be happy about it. It would, I mean, you would have already moved away from the game and there's no reason that they would ever do anything else. Like why, what would be the appeal for them to just burn all of that equity instantly? Uh, and the answer is there isn't. Um, and if you, I don't know why you think there is, it's just, it's, that's not the way it would go. So, uh, you know, I've, I've all, I've been a, a kind of a fan of the reserve list for a long time for a variety of reasons. Um, and I don't want to turn this into a reserveless hour and chat more and more about it, but uh, definitely, definitely more to this than people think. But let's let's get into segment two here. Well, well, hold on, hold on. One final thought, because I actually didn't finish my earlier point because I uh, spun off as I tend to. Um, what I was saying was the best argument for getting rid of the reserve list isn't about access; it's about better art. 
Like, don't don't you sometimes get jealous of how good the vintage cards look on Magic Online? Like some of them, like the bat, the dual lands on Magic Online have gorgeous art. Yeah, the all of the art that they recommissioned on Moto is is definitely superior. Black Lotus is is not a good looking card. Uh, I mean, a lot of the power cards are mediocre in appearance for sure. Are, yeah, and and the and the revised duels are so washed out. Yeah, they're they're just ugly. I hate them. Um, and their art works better in Black Border, which makes sense because that's what they, how they were originally framed. Um, but anyway, they, it's a it's a, de- a deep topic. I could go on forever about it. You're you're not you don't want the reserve list on Ben, and it has nothing to do with the cards that we're holding that we want to sell. Trust me, as as I pointed out on Twitter earlier this week, <laughs> by all means, shatter the reserve list and print Vintage Masters. Do you know how much money we will make on that? <laughs> I don't even think I have. Really, very many reserve list cards in my inventory at all. I mean, I have a bunch of masterpieces, but I don't think I have much in the way of reserve list cards. I mean, I don't own any power. I, I have about 10K at this point. Um, I had more before I traded my Lotus for crypto. Um, but I'm not at all scared of, of a banning of the reserve list. I know that whatever circumstances that would occur under would make us money, not cost us money. Well, yeah, I mean, and and that's why and that's why vendors have said the same thing because they're going to get to the the amount of a the shower of interest and attention that would come from that short term mid term burst of activity around vintage and legacy would they get to work their forty percent margin all the way through that and so whatever they lose in inventory, you know, except for the guys like Dan Bach who you know have a few million dollars worth of power squirreled away hoping to retire on it. Um, the average vendor, the average LGS is going to make more money off the release than they would lose. Yeah, you make more money on $10 doubling seasons than $50 doubling seasons. Yeah. Um, and so... <laughs> all right. So let's move on so we, we don't spend the whole show talking about this. Uh, segment two, our card swatch. James, what have you got in stock for us this week? So on the on the premise that the reserve list isn't going anywhere... Uh, <laughs> Scrub land has been targeted uh, in the last couple of days. There are extremely low quantities of scrub lands lying around under 150. I think it's going to hit 250 before the end of the year. Um, if you've got a local shop that hasn't repriced the scrub lands yet, you might want to head over there. This is going to be of a lot more value today, Saturday, than it will be by Monday. So pro traders fire away. Oh, all right. That's uh Good one. I, I'm kind of amazed to look over and see Scrubland at those prices, but uh, come a long way, I suppose. We've come a long way. Um, I uh, I will start out with Emrakul, the Promise End, currently at around eleven dollars. I like this up to probably twenty five, maybe even more than that on a long enough time frame. Uh, he's in like five five thousand ish stacks on EDH track. Um, he's a popular card for the new Joda Commander, the one that lets you cast cards for five mana. Uh, rather than their full casting costs. He's the only Emrakul legal in uh, EDH. And this is just going to have a appeal as essentially the castable Emrakul. Um, so he's the only one that's legal in, in EDH. You can also cast him uh, because in the sense that like you can get to his mana cost, he's still very powerful. He gets used in modern occasionally by because, again, you can cast him because of the, the cost reduction with the delirium effect. Uh, so in general, it's and, and supplies draining. You know, right now I think there's copies at eleven dollars, but there's not that many of them. Uh, so they're out there, but it's still uh, it's it's not a deep deep supply. So I think you can probably ride these up the train for a little while. This is a tipping point card uh, immediately, but in foil, there are four copies, five copies listed on TCG Player in foil 
Two of them are at 70. The rest are under 40. Uh, those are snap buys. Okay. And you guys, you guys will be very lucky if Travis hasn't already purchased them by the time you hear this. I, I, I haven't bought anything. I tend not to buy the specs that we talk about on the show. So, uh, I'm, I'm not shy about buying foil emeralds. Also worth mentioning, this is some of the best art magic's ever seen. Like yeah, it is the, really cool art. The the art on Emrakul, the Promised End, especially if you've ever seen the big version, is a stunning, grandiose, Cthulhu-esque nightmare um, that you would not want to wake up and find out your window. Uh, yeah, I would agree. It'd be weird if I woke up and saw the art for Emrakul outside of my window. Like, what is this art doing here? Why is that art hanging outside my window? Yeah. It's like somebody hit my trash cans. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's very good chance the foils are going to pop before the non-foils. I target those first, but I, I think the specs rock solid. Okay, cool. What do you got next for us? Uh, so we were speaking of the buy a box promos uh, earlier. Another card that's been targeted on the heels of Search for Azkanta buy a box promos selling out. Um, and keep in mind, I was buying those for 30 to 35 a couple months back and sold them this week over 120. Um, Growing Rights of Itlamok was widely panned and was one of my earlier early picks from Ixalan. Um, everybody said that it's it's no guy's cradle, <laughs> except now we have Slimefoot and it fits right into that deck and the buy box promos are drying up. And if you can find any of them anywhere near $40, those are snap buys. If you can find the Japanese ones, even better. And if you can't find either of those, just go ahead and get regular old foils because they're already at 15 bucks and it's going to end up being a $50 card. And God knows what it'll be in five years when people have realized that this thing is ridiculous in EDH. Yeah, I want to buy these. Uh, I haven't bought any and I keep telling myself that I should, but I definitely think this card is real good in basically any version that you pick it up in. The, the only tension I that I see in the tokeny decks in EDH with this card is that it only lets you search for a creature, right? Um, not for a land and not for anything that makes tokens from a sorcery or an enchantment. So if your token deck is heavily reliant on uh, non-creature sources of tokens, then it might be a miss when it first comes down. So then the next question is, how often do you have four creatures in play? And do you care about having a whole bunch of mana um, to pile into combo cards or mana sinks or whatever once you flip it. Um, my argument is that eventually, absolutely, there are going to be enough, enough commanders that want this on turn three, four, five, six, um, and are happy to have this plus cradle in their deck for additional consistency. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you do have that angle where it's, it's hard in that sense. Uh, but the, the ability is still good enough, right? Like even if you can't hit, get exactly what you want with it, it's still going to give you a lot of utility. And the mana is just so good. Like you can't, can't be upset about that. Yeah. I mean, I think where it really like fires off is where the creature that you, where the decks have enough creatures that you're going to hit on the tutor and then flip pretty much right away. That's hot. Um, and of course it's not cradle cradle. You just drop and make mana, but it's so close to cradle. Yeah. It's, it's, if cradle is a, nine out of 10 power level magic card. This is easily a six or a seven, and that's plenty good enough given how uh, much demand there will be long-term for these foils and heaven forbid someone figure out how to make this card work in modern. Yeah. That's, that's uh, a refrain that I hear all the time is, Oh, well uh, it's no X. It's not as good as this. And it's like, yeah, but you're talking about a card that is essentially the best of its type. Like, yes, there isn't, uh 
it's not as good as that, but there's so much room for it to be worse than that card and still define any other formats that it's legal in. So keep that in mind. Yeah. So if I, and if I had to extend the thought, the next two I think after this are Legion's Landing on the basis that of modern potential modern play and in Black White Vampires in EDH and um, Primal Amulet. Primal Amulet, the one that makes your instance and sorceries cheaper, I believe. And I can't remember off the top of my head what it flips into. Right, so Primal Amulet reads, Instant and Sorcery spells you cast cost one less to cast. Whenever you cast an Instant and Sorcery spell, put a charge counter on it. If it gets four charge counters, then you flip it, and then you add one mana of any color to your mana. Oh, right, so it's the fork land. So basically makes your Instant Sorceries cheaper. Once you've cast four of them, it flips over and starts doubling all your Instants and Sorceries. There are a ton of Jeskai and Grixis commanders that are spell-focused um, wizards and so forth in ETH that will want this card long-term, and the buy box promos are still super cheap, and I can't tell you how nice these mapster pieces look in person. If you've never actually seen one, get your hands on one. Trust me, they are the best looking of all of the masterpieces. I heard that, the mapster pieces. I just sneak it in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they all seem like good choices, honestly. And, and you know, Itlamak is certainly uh, one of the more obvious ones because of EDH, but they all seem like they're likely to be good. It seems like, you know, the, the obvious ones like... Uh, Search for Iskanta and Itlamok will see some real good success early because they're the ones with strong play patterns. And then the rest will kind of get dragged along with them because they're also good. Like, oh yeah, these are also cool looking cards uh, with this effect. And even though they're not as immediately playable, I still want to own them so I can have the set. Yeah. Your next pick? Uh, my next pick is Bringer of the Black Dawn. Uh, Mirrodin? No, Fifth Dawn. Fifth Dawn creature uh, from way back. Currently, foils are available at about seven bucks. This is the uh, wait, let me get the text here for you. It's an eight mana five, nine mana five five, but you can pay one of each color rather than it's nine mana. It's a five five trample that at the beginning of your upkeep you demonic tutor. Uh, you put the card on top of your library, but then you draw it immediately on your draw step. So it's essentially a demonic tutors on your upkeep. Demonic tutor, I don't need to remind you, is an extremely powerful effect in um, in EDH very popular there's a reason that card is always thirty dollars uh but generally this is kind of flown under the radar because five color commander like you have to be playing five colors to want this and it was yeah but with joda uh putting a real premium on cat on like being able to pay all five colors this gets a lot better uh because it's just you're going to be able to pay that five mana every time no question um and then go find a humongous card the next humongous card in your deck that also allows you that you that you then truly do want to cast for the five mana, um, whether it's a sweeper, one-sided sweeper type of thing, or if you'd want to go get your Fist of the Suns to turn all your other cards in your hand on type of thing. So it does a lot of work for you there. It's ancient, right? There's only one printing from fifth on. Uh, again, foils are around seven bucks. They're going to be gone real soon. He's not that popular in EDH so far, but I don't see that as a problem because Joda is the first deck to kind of give him a reason to be there. Um, so I like foils of this. Even though it's fifth on and the foils aren't excellent, you'll still have an original one. And the blue one too, Bringer of the Blue Dawn is also pretty solid. It just draws you two cards every turn. So those are both definitely, I think, solid foil choices. This thing's rock solid. Um, hasn't seen a printing in forever. Super unlikely to show up anytime soon. Could I mean, the Bringers could show up as a cycle in something like Magic 2019, but I just don't see it being on their radar as a priority. And a Vampiric Tutor every turn is good, last I heard. Uh, yeah, exactly. 
I suppose that's probably better than a more apt description than uh, demonic tutor, isn't it? Yeah. So I think that's red hot because Joda's one of the top three commanders. Um, my last pick is actually one of your picks from a ways back. Um, I don't remember when it happened yeah. mo- months ago, but this is the tipping point. It's on track to be in my next tipping point article. If there's any left, crypt gas foils um, from gate crash to calling them to move from 12 to 25 or 30. This in 17,000 EDH decks. Any big mana black deck in EDH wants it. Um, no reason for them to reprint it anytime soon. Almost certain that you're going to get a chance to out the out a small number of them before it ever sees a reprint. And just a fantastic card that has come time to make you some money. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly on par uh, on board with it. Uh, I actually have some in front of me right now. I think that I have to open up uh, that just arrived. So I think it's a, a real good choice. It's still very popular. It's not going to get less popular. It hasn't still hasn't seen print getting a new printing. Still isn't going to see a new printing. Uh, I'm I'm on board. Did you uh, buy anything with the eBay coupon last night? No, I was busy. Oh uh, no, that's not true. I bought a new solid state hard drive. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so let me just throw in a bonus pick from my eBay cart last night. Russian foil fire song and sun speakers. Oh. These are the buy a box promos have been selling for between 10 and $13 a copy on eBay from the Russian vendors. Those guys run LGSs. They tend to hoard their, this stuff and sell it through on eBay. It will not last forever. Because there are, I did a count last night of how many LGSs there are in Russia. There are less than 50. <laughs> so. Is it really that you little? Could, yes. Russia's not, doesn't have that high of a population and most of it is empty Siberian wasteland. So there is, there might only be, there, there might be less than a thousand of this card in the world. No. I think that's probably. no way it's that low. Each LGS got sent only as many only enough of these according to their wpn allocation and i'm guessing most of the lgs's in russia are not top tier so let's say that they were all top tier and they all got 50 copies to hand out for their pre-orders then 50 by 50 is 2500 that is the max number of copies of this card that could exist on the planet well i mean wizards may have them stashed Right, like why, why? Well, I mean, why, they why have, would they? St- because are they only are they only no. going to print a thousand copies of this? Like they're going to run this card yeah. through their printer and only do a thousand of them. Yeah, but keep in mind these could have been on sheets where they were mixed in with other languages. Like this is a this is a small print run that they run at their alternate printer along with a bunch of other promos, like judge promos, right? Uh yeah, I mean, I don't know how they're. I don't know what their printing structure looks like. It just seems odd to me to say that they only would have printed a thousand of them. Well, even if it's twenty, even if it's twenty five hundred, even if it's five thousand, even if you want to push it to ten thousand, that is my like orders of magnitude less than your average magic card these well, days. Yeah, that's certainly low. And and the English ones are selling for basically the same price. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of English speaking magic stores that got allocations of these. So, <laughs> uh, these are easy $50 cards down the road. If this, if this commander is bad in commander, then you're probably not going to have a, a, a very quick time outing them. But if the card is, is at even medium popular in EDH, then you will end up selling these down the road for a very pretty penny. What did you pay? Say you paid for them? 1250. 
That's minus the, my, minus the fifteen percent. Isn't uh, I mean, isn't what's the English one right now? Is it like eight bucks? Yeah, it's like ten bucks. So you're basically not paying anything for the Russian there's, ones. There's no premium, yeah. Well, I mean, the only catch here is that if they decide to print these, um, uh, which we'll call it again. Yeah, if they put it in the next set, like as has been discussed as possibly what their plan is. Like it's a buy box promo now, but then it gets released as a real card in the next set. Yeah, that's possible. Um, although I don't think it would be the same art. Yeah, you'd, you'd have that going for you most likely. And and more to the point, depending on where it is released, if it showed up in a commander product and it was non-foil or there was no Russian version, then the equation doesn't change at all. Correct, correct. I, I didn't realize. I guess it, it's a fair point that there's there's that few of them. It's uh, an interesting an interesting angle. The the other ones I would be looking at same circumstances is the Lanowar Elf uh, Friday Night Magic promos that just came out in Russian. These that's Russian foil Lanowar Elves full art. Oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> Those are sick. Not as cool um, as the original F and M Lanowar Elf, but sure. Although that art is ugly. Um, Iconic James and- ugly. Iconic, yes, but still ugly, um, which is which is describes most of original magic um, and cast down. So we were talking to Todd earlier this week and he said, you know, cast down has a role to play in modern, never more than probably one or two of. But it's a card and there are Russian foil full art versions of that as well floating around. That's nifty. I don't I mean, I guess I don't know what's a Russian foil like tier four modern card worth. I, I don't know. Like somebody wants it, I guess. I, I I think you prioritize them in the order we've discussed. Them. Yeah, I know. No, I'm, I'm not giving you a hard time. I'm just kind of like wondering, like, I wonder what those actually go for type of thing. Yeah. The other thing I bought was uh, Dominaria Russian boxes at 90 apiece. I was slam dunk and uh, Russian foil Spire of Industry at 25. That's kind of cool. And a couple of Japanese foil Crypt Gas at 12. That's real nice. Mm-hmm. All right, so that wraps up our picks of the week. I think we easily earned our keep this week. Yeah, no kidding. Don't we every every week? Uh, not to scratch our backs too much, <laughs> but SEG Atlanta last weekend was a teams tournament where they were playing Standard, Modern, and Legacy at the same time. Um, did anything jump out at you there as being particularly interesting? No. <laughs> nah, yeah i mean i looked through it there was nothing that i was like oh man did you see this deck this is nuts the team one is really difficult to parse for sure um i looked over at the classic side of things i was looking at modern classics specifically uh nothing there was really phenomenal um i did notice that they had the the one angel whose name i'm never gonna remember the one that gives all your creatures yeah one uh, of the company was around and Todd Shall talked I? about that before. Uh, Hollow One is up there, but the, another stock bill. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's just guys. So Healing Eighth Place is kind of in- interesting. Uh, I don't know. Other than that, nothing really blew me away. What about you? Well, I continue to buy Foil Sahili Rise. Let's put it that way. He, th- this is not the final form of this deck, right? This this deck is going to get one or two pieces along the way and all of a sudden be just ridiculous. The, the the key thing that it's missing is that these kind of decks, as we were talking about earlier about it being a lightning bolt path, fatal push format, um, they get interacted with as they're trying to combo off, which is why I asked about the like temporary hexproof solution, because that that kind of a card 
not that particular template, but something along those lines, something that allows them to combo off unfettered is what might be the tipping point for this kind of deck. I mean, it, it's already mm-hmm. top eighting and nobody ever talks about Sahili. <laughs> but it's one of those decks that it seems like the issue could be um, either the deck is really good and nobody's really giving it credit, but only one guy's playing it. So like we haven't really seen much of it. Uh, could be that it's missing a piece. Uh, could be that it's just bad and people are getting lucky. I think the jury's still kind of out. But I do agree that it is a uh, an accessible combo uh, and reminiscent of Splinter Twin, which and we know how that went. So there is certainly the possibility that this could get uh, out of control at some point. I would refer people to the ramp on the foils on TCG. And by the ramp, I mean how quickly from vendor to vendor the price accelerates. So you can get a whole, there's a bunch of vendors with them listed at 14 to 15, maybe the first 15, 20 copies. Then you're up over 20 bucks. Then you're over 30 bucks. And very quickly, you're over 40. And then you run out. Sahili foils are not very deep. It's a four of mythic in the deck. Pretty good positioning. So shouldn't foil mythic four ofs, even if they're only in one deck in modern, be worth more than $15? 15, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. If you so. could score these uh, at your local store, at the very least, that'd be a great card to find and trade i guess hard i mean how, finding people how, i mean i bought a, a foil i opened a foil russian in a box and bought a foil russian for 50 the lowest price foil russian i can find is like 190 now they, i mean they probably like are very hard to just find right like i'm sure that most of them just aren't for sale at any given time mm-hmm um, well, and and how, many, how many get lost in the Siberian wasteland when the guy dies on his dog sled on the way to the LGS 400 miles away? I mean, there's probably like at least a 70% attrition rate from that. <laughs> exactly. All the decks that are buried under the snow. Yeah. If they're double sleeve, they might still be good. <clears throat> I believe that that is uh, actually where most of Russia's resources are attributed. It's just This is a Canadian a Canadian making fun of Russia like I live in anything, <laughs> anything different. Toronto's close enough. You kind of get a pass. <laughs> um, All right. So... I guess our final topic of the week, just to browse through quickly, is this new product coming out on, I think it's June 8th. June 8th, we get Battle Bond, which is their next attempt to introduce a new casual format. Um, I think this is a kind of an odd choice, actually, to be following so close on the heels of Brawl. I get that they want a summer set release like a conspiracy and they've given up on conspiracy because that didn't really work out the way they wanted it to. But I think that in the same quarter that you've announced Brawl, I think it's a poor choice to also be announcing Battle Bond. That's my take. Hmm. Uh, I mean, possibly. I wonder, you think this is a case of like one hand not talking to the other one? I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I, I think that it's, I think that they they seem to underestimate the value that there is a balance point between having enough formats that players have options and so many formats that they get distracted, um, that they feel overwhelmed, that they feel, or that in LGSs they have trouble bringing 10 people together for an FNM night. Um, the importance of everybody being on the same page about what they're going to play. Cause the last thing you want in those towns is Two guys show up for modern, two guys show up for legacy, two guys show up for draft, two guys want to play brawl, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I would have to imagine that, you know, the store is saying, okay, this is what it's going to be tonight because they know that uh, they won't get enough otherwise. Yeah. 
Um, certainly to some extent. I guess we should outline what this is. Battle Bond is a new draft format, which is basically two-headed giant where the two-headed the giant drafts together and plays together. Um, hmm. I'm actually I'm actually a big fan of two-headed giant. My brother and I play. It's like the only time he plays magic with me is we go to like pre-releases and play two-headed giant. And it's super fun. Um, we have a great time. It's much more social um, than the alternative. I've I've gone to tournaments, competitive tournaments with my dad for years, and it's like we didn't even hang out because <laughs> you go to a GP and you're like playing modern or something or or draft all day or limited all day. Um, you barely see each other. You basically go out for dinner. Um, so two out of giant is cool. Um, lets you uh, you know have a good time with a friend. Um, and it's even cooler that you get to draft where you know maybe the friend you're playing with doesn't play that much magic. So they're not going to be that great at drafting. And so the fact that you get to do it together allows them to kind of lean on the better player in the team. Um, so the way this works is if you're drafting, you get four packs instead of three. Um, you sit together. So there's basically four teams around a table. And when you pass, you take two cards at a time. Mm-hmm. And, then you, and then you make two 40-card decks and you play two at a giant. It's a, it's a nifty concept. Uh, and I do like... It seems like it might be a good sweet spot for multiplayer i suppose in the sense that like it, it does it gives you the ability to actually sit and play with people and two-headed giant is a popular format um you know sales wise is it going to be any different than conspiracy probably not like essentially the same type of thing right the sort of off the beaten path not normal re- magic that you return to all the time kind of like almost a one and done yeah, th- that is my concern, is that I think like Conspiracy, this is going to play out very similarly. Um, I actually really enjoyed the Conspiracy format <laughs> because I figured out early on that you're just supposed to draft a great deck, then figure out who else gra- drafted a great deck in the first few uh, turns of the game. And then you just agree with them to kill everybody else because the top two players at each table proceeded. <laughs> yeah, right. So That's, you basically uh, just you just collude your way to the top. Yeah, you just Conspiracy your way to the top. and it's, It was all good. Um I think actually the, the the core friction point here is how many people are, is that you have to have teams. Like you have to be already like be bringing somebody to the table that you trust and want to sit beside and draft with. Like, would you want to go to an LGS and draft randomly sitting very close to somebody and whispering in, in their ear if you weren't already friends? I don't even want to do that with my friends. <laughs> right. So this is like great for date night magic. If, if there are LGSs that can pull enough couples together to support that, um, and or for bestie, you know, best friends forever magic, um, I, I find it. I, I've been to a lot of LGSs where I think that the the need to make a friend on the spot will be challenging. <laughs> Especially if you've ever been to any LGS, you'd understand how that's a challenge. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Um, so, but as a result, I expect this this set to be flash in the pan, you know, relatively underwhelming. We're going to quickly move on to Magic 2019 pretty closely thereafter. Um, and because of that, any I think this is going to end up like Conspiracy and Conspiracy 2, where any good cards that come out of this from EDH, foils are going to get low pretty quick. Um, and then within 18 months, they're suddenly going to pop off. Um, in the same way that we saw with cards like Expro- Expropriate or some of the cards that are... Um, that make you the monarch that are now good in popper. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one in qu- the, we haven't seen any spoilers for this yet, except for the rare land cycle, um, which I flagged yesterday as you know probably target foils to target, especially since um, 
the lands in question, like the set is being printed in English, Chinese, simplified Chinese and Japanese. And Japanese are not famous for their love of casual formats. So whatever good cards come out of this, there will be Japanese foils posted on the Japanese vendor sites, I'm assuming at a song early on. Yeah, that'll be... So I agree with you that the card distribution will be very similar to Conspiracy. Any EDH staples like Expropriate or uh, uh, stuff that's popular elsewhere like Leovold will stand a chance to go pretty wild. Um, And I also expect this to probably be opened less than Conspiracy. It seems like I just I you know I don't have anything other than an intuition on that, but I imagine conspiracy pulling more players in than just a two-headed draft format. Uh, so, I, I and maybe that's a bit of per, a bit of a, a personal reflection, but conspiracy I understood why it sounded cool and fun and like it did something unique. And this is just like oh, it's just another expansion set, but it's also two-headed giant, which I can do with other sets anyways. I don't know. Uh, so there's probably gonna be less of it opened overall. And yeah, the Japanese market, uh, will be pretty wild early on if you can figure out what's, what's good and what's not before anyone else does. So let's talk about the lands that we know about. These are the only cards we've seen from the set. Um, it's a cycle of dual lands, um, clearly targeted at multiplayer, specifically EDH. I think we can all agree that's what they're doing here. Um, they are in allied colors. So green, white, black, red, blue, black, white, blue, and red, green, Bountiful Promenade, Luxury Suite, Morphic Pool, Sea of Clouds, and Spire Garden. When they enter the battlefield, they are tapped unless you have two or more opponents. So I'm coining the phrase Last Stand Lands. Can you get with that? Uh, No, there was another one that I liked more. It was... uh, Shoot, hold on, let me find it. My argument being, of course, that they only function properly at maximum efficiency if you're outnumbered. So they are last stand lands. No, there was there was a good one that I read that I immediately was like, oh yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, what the heck was it? This is going to take me a minute to find, so we should move on and I will let you know when I find it. So first off, um, luxury suite foils have to be a thing. <laughs> because if you have the option to have a Japanese foil luxury suite. It is a, essentially a picture of a red velvet champagne room. Um, it's a magic card that's named after the back of a nightclub. Everything about that's just hilarious. So I expect those to be brisk sellers. Um, and certainly in blue black decks, uh, especially like decks, non green EDH decks, uh, will really appreciate a fresh duel. You had pointed out yesterday that your concern was you can't fetch for them because they don't have land types, which of course is the other half of why revised dual lands are so good. Uh, crowd lands. Crowd lands. Mm-hmm. That's not better than last stand lands. Yes, it is. Last stand lands is such a rolls off the tongue way better. No, last stand lands is awful. It's like a tongue twister. Crowd lands is quick, snappy, <laughs> and it's two syllables. And because it only works when you have at least th- three players, right? There's a crowd. Three's a crowd. Okay. You, you, I think you're like I, I, I can, I can, I can, I can get into that. Lands. I, I, I can get. Well, yes, but I can get in. I can get into that metaphor. I mean, I had to have it explained to me. I think Last Stand Lands is more obvious. Um, and I and I agree that le- less syllables always better in branding. Um, but Last Stand Lands has excellent alliteration. Uh, I, I guess I, I personally, and maybe not everyone, but I personally find that clunky. It's not okay. bad, but it's just 
Last Stand Lands. I, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> You're deliberately no. slowing it down when you said it the first time. Last Stand right Lands. Off last stand lands. It just, I, I feel like I'm, I'm missing part of every word in that name if I don't really pause. But Crowdlands is just like Crowdlands, Taplands, Checklands, Cap- Buddylands. Sure, but you're over-focusing on how fast you can say it. <laughs> Crowdlands is a very static, does does not have any drama to it. Last Stand alludes to the fact that you are outnumbered and outgunned. Yeah, but I don't think that's and- ever been a part of naming cycles like Checklands, Buddylands, Taplands, Scrylands. Yeah. I, I would argue many of those are poorly well, named. Sure. Fetchlands and Shocklands, I think, are the best and the most enduring um, and the easiest to remember. Um, because they describe what happens. The, the shock lands shock you for two because shock is a magic card that deals two damage. And fetch lands go and get the thing that you want. So they are fetch lands. It's, it's about describing the action, the drama of the, of the scenario. Anyway, I can, I can live with it either way. Uh, it's it's going to be the me. most, the most um, vehement argument on this cast will ever will be <laughs> last sand lands versus crowd lands. <laughs> I only picked the stupid <laughs> shit to argue about. And, and then it's going to end up being something completely different yeah. anyway. Um, and so, bottom line, you 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 don't you didn't think this would make it in your mana bases. So, my initial read on these was that they were extremely underwhelming. I don't think I have, and I I shouldn't say underwhelming. I guess whenever I have sat down to construct a mana base for EDH decks, whether two or three colors, uh, I tend to find that my mana fixing gets good very fast like you know in a three color deck you've got three shocks three duels like up to five fetches you've probably you probably want a couple number of carus uh and then you also want a certain number of basics depending on what else your deck is trying to do um so right there you can hit like i can probably hit you between 15 and 25 non-basic lands really quickly. And even like 15 to 20 mana producing, not utility lands uh, without ever wanting just a untyped dual land. And I think that's going to remain true for three color decks for the most part. Um, however, I have, I'm looking at EDH rock right now and I pulled up just Brago, who's just a standard blue white deck. Uh, and I, I'm looking at what the common lands played are and they start off pretty good, right? You've got glacial fortress, uh, which is, I think is better. Um, the Karoo land, shock land duels and fetches are on here in terms of the high play how, um, amount they're played because they're, you know, pricier people have them less. Um, but then I start seeing stuff like tranquil quote, Tranquil Cove, which is a dual land that always comes in the play tapped and gains you a life. And it's in half of the Brago decks. Uh, that land is trash in EDH. Like you do not want your color producing lands to come in the play tapped unless you do a lot of work for you. Uh, and that one doesn't. So it is definitely better than that. So I guess these are, I would think of these as workhorse lands. Like they're not sexy. They're not fun. They're not interesting. They're not exciting. But they probably, if you're in a two color deck, are probably worth their slot. Okay. I mean, I think I agree with all of that. I mean, I, I, and, you know, the existence of two color decks, um, you know, backs the, my earlier comments. The, I, I see it exactly the same way that, like, this isn't the first land you put in your deck. It's somewhere in the middle, late, you know, middle, second, third, final third of your land base, depending on what your needs are. 
But the thing is that it's not just about how good the land is in comparison to other options. You and I have the duels. Yeah, that's what I players for, For players that don't have the duels, eliminate all those slots and the fetches are going to get shocks. And so in an opening hand, would you rather have a shock or one of these? It's one of these. Well, they, they come into play untapped at the start of the game because you always have the number of opponents that's required. And they immediately start making the mana you need. So I would actually disagree. I think at the starting la- start of the game, I'd rather have the shock land in this one because you're almost never going to use all of your mana every turn in the first couple turns of EDH unless you've got a really tuned or low to the ground deck. So just being able to drop a shock in and not feel bad about not taking the two and not wasting them on it is fine. <laughs> and then this way it leaves this open as a live draw later in the game where you want to preserve the life and you, but you also want like the land production. Sure, sure, sure. But that's a different argument. You're talking about what is, what is the idea, like which, how do you optimize the hand if you get to pick what's in it? What I'm saying is if you open a hand and you have both of them, this is, this is the better land. Clearly, uh, I st- over the course of the game, I still disagree. I think if anytime you can play a shock land in EDH with no repercussion is the best time to play it because you don't want to fetch them because you are it's still coming to play tap or you're losing the two life. I- I'm not following the as fan, the 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 um, the missing land types don't matter because you're not fe- it's not a fetchable situation. You're just playing it into play. So obviously the land that has no downside is better than the shock. Uh, if you're talking, yes, I, like the fact that the, the fact that the shock has a downside that you are happy to dodge by playing it first out of your hand and then playing this card, I fully agree with. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that these are going to get these are there are parts of the game where this is just clearly a better land to have in hand. Well, later on in the game when life totals are at a premium then yes, you absolutely want to draw this rather than the shock land, which is why I was saying playing the shock land first is preferable. Uh, but but I, I mostly agree with you. I think I think we're kind of on okay. different topics. So, so let's let, let's segue to the financial aspect then, because I think I think you know we're going to come to the same conclusion that everybody else will once they've actually played with them. Was that it's going to make a lot of decks. So if it's going to make a lot of decks, um, I think we can both agree that Japanese foils. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that's an interesting question because who are these for? Who are the, they're not for people with, they're much less for people with shock, dual, fetch decks. They're for people, these are workhorse cards for people who are doing something else, who don't have those options. And if that's the case, do they want Japanese foils? I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying that's incorrect. I'm just kind of like wondering out loud, like whether there's sure. enough demand. A work. A worthy consideration, but these are rares in a set that's probably going to be only open for a few weeks. The Japanese, who knows if they even open them? Maybe the Japanese stores will just send them back to the distributors. <laughs> I, I don't know how much casual is getting played in, in the LGSs in Japan, Maybe really. Zero. Given the prices, given the prices we see on EDH cards all yeah. the time, and these lands, these lands require you to have multiple opponents. I mean, they're going to be dirt cheap in n- like no name side bar shops in Akihabara. Like, would you not like to be in Aki a month after this thing's well, released? And scoop up every single copy of these you find? Uh, yeah, probably. I'm sure they'll be dirt cheap. I guess I kind of wonder about it from the perspective, like, is there enough people in America who are going to want them? I suppose. Oh, I, I'd have to go back and look at, like, the prices of, like, Japanese foil um, Glacial Fortress. Like, I, I just don't, I don't know that number off the top of my head right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think because these, 
are so obviously targeted at EDH, just the imprint of that targeting will accelerate their their uptake. Um, I'm, I'm going to be watching it. I, I think these foils are going to be available sub $5 in Japan, and I think they are going to end up 20 plus. Really? Because, yeah, because I, I think that Wizards knows Japan doesn't play that much casual. So though, even though they're printing it into Japan, they're not going to print anywhere near as much Japanese product as they will English product, first of all, because English can be distributed in a bunch of different countries. Japanese is only distributed there. Um, I'm guessing that uh, LGSs will not be able to get the Japanese product along with their orders, but maybe they will. Um, if I see Japanese boxes on eBay during a 30% off sale, slam dunk. Hmm. Now, I don't know what else is in the set, so that <laughs> if it's just these lands, then maybe that's not true. Um, but I suspect it's going to be like conspiracy. We're going to get it, it's a multiplayer focused format. So you're going to get a bunch of things that says happens to each opponent, yeah. which is the kind of cards that end up exploding in EDH because they're worthless to everybody else, but great when you've got multiple people to target. Yeah, that's true. And that's probably going to set this set up to have a lot of those types of effects where it's the, the wording specifically is, is very good. Hmm. All right. So we've gone on for ages today. I think we can probably wrap up. Um, oh, God. Yeah, it's been an hour and a half. Geez. Um, where can people find you online, Travis? I am on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday over MTG Price on the Watchtower series. Uh, and I also do the webcast Cartel Riscrets. Uh You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. Um, I think I've, I've got an article about a buy list coming up this week. And we've also got a guest article about trading into a Black Lotus, a beta Black Lotus that's going to be posted with a video. Um, Travis and I also have fairly exciting packages coming in from Europe um, worth many thousands of dollars in the next little while. So we are going to be experimenting with some Twitch streaming and or YouTube videos for you guys to enjoy of us uh, unboxing that stuff. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, we're, I also snapped up the domain um, magiccards.store last night. So we're going to figure out some kind of pretty awesome project little experimental project that we will announce sometime in the next month so keep an eye out for that okay uh and how where can people find you did you say that uh, did i miss out yeah I, I said okay all right uh okay did you okay well if that's the case and that brings episode 117 to wrap i apologize for writing 116 on the interview i don't consider the episodes where i'm not here to be canon <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it was a pleasure james and uh i will talk to you next week i'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just 4.99 a month or 49.99 per year you can get early access to this podcast fantastic articles by the best mtg finance minds in the business and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing magic the gathering all right awesome i will see you next week james Thank you, Travis. We'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.